2: Hey, can you hear me, sir? I'm sure you turn a lot of interviewers and things into, like, little boys, but just even seeing your name come up as, like, Antoine Patton, like, on my fucking Zoom. Do you know what I mean? I was like, it was just (laughs) such a... Anyway, I'll I'll stop with, like, the compliments and the praise, at least for a minute. (laughs) I'm Mark Ronson, and this is the Fader Uncovered Podcast in this interview series i'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world from genre defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers about their lives and careers each episode will be rooted in these musicians iconic fader cover stories an institution that over the past two decades has told artists stories like no other the podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past present and future reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Bronson. My guest today goes by several names. Daddy Fatsack, Sir Lucius Leftfoot, General Patton, each one fairly iconic. But let's be honest, Numb makes us feel as warm and fuzzy inside, quite like Big Boy, the name we first knew him by when he burst on the scene as one half of Outcast, one of the most beloved groups in all of musical history. Actually, fuck it, let's just call it the most beloved group in music history. Sure, the Beatles might cast a much wider net, but we all know some asshole from our high school or middle school or something who used to say, the Beatles suck, bro. Nobody ever says Outcast sucks. Ever. When you have that exceptional talent to back up the bravest of evolutions from album to album without ever losing your fans, but actually gaining fans, that's how you achieve that God-level status. During Outkast's run, they changed the face of rap and pop music, first by putting the South properly on the map with their brilliant debut Southern Playlistic Cadillac music. That album earned them Best New Artist at the 95 Source Awards in New York City. It's the infamous Sug vs. Puff, East vs. West Coast Source Awards, where the tensions were crazy high. And when outcasts get up to accept the award, they're booed by the New York crowd. But watching Andre, a teenage, defiant Andre, grab the mic and go, the South got something to say, the South got something to say, and silence the crowd, i mean, it gives me chills. By the time they hit their run of A.T. Aliens into Aquemini into Stanconia, it was an album-to-album evolution that rivaled Stevie or Radiohead in their prime. And of course, there's Love Below, box, the double album that spawned Hey Ya, The Way You Move, swept the Grammys and sold over 10 million copies. Big Boy and Andre made it okay to be so many things, to be weird, to smash genres, to switch tempos, to be political, to be musical, to be daring. Even if you could never dream of aspiring to their genius, you knew you had to shoot for it, and that pushed everyone forward. There's often a maddeningly simplified dichotomy that arises, R.E., Andre and Big Boy's contribution within the group. The poet versus the player, so to speak. But real fans all know Big Boy was very much a visionary, and his insane lyrical skills, ear for the great hooks, all those things, drove that engine. Plus, he's the Aquarius in Aquemini. The dependable fella that also keeps the Gemini from blasting too far off into space. And one need look no further than Big Boy's fantastic and critically acclaimed solo work to see this. Albums like Sir Lucius Leftfoot and Visions Of. Plus, he kept the club's tore up with staples like Kryptonite and my personal fave Shudderbug. As for Vision, when he formed his label in 2005, he put Killer Mike and Janelle Monáe on very early probably a little too early, but he still takes a lot of pride in looking at them now, two of the most exciting, important figures in contemporary music. His importance to modern music and the cutting edge is also evidenced in the fact that he's graced the cover of The Fader three, count them, three times, twice with Andre and once as a solo star in 2005 with Killer Mike. Like millions of us, Big Boy has soundtracked my life and helped pave the way for us all to make better music, to be more daring. But he's still so damn excited to make new music, get it out there, and play it for the people. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: It's all good, man.
2: Where are you right now? That looks very pretty and much nicer than rainy New York, where I am. I'm in my
0: backyard.
2: I take it this house you will not be putting on Airbnb, because I just read that you bought the old Dungeon family home and you can stay on it for Airbnb. Yes, That sounds fresh. I mean, I would honestly go there. I mean, it's obviously such a place that whether you make music, whether you're a fan of music, it's like uh, Abbey Road or John Lennon's house or something like that. Have have you had a lot of music fans come and stay there so far?
0: Yeah, I actually did a contest when Airbnb came in and they had like three guests come in. You know, I got the studio in there. That's in a different part of the house. Yeah. Where they came and they recorded music and it sounded pretty dope, you know, so. Really? After that first little stretch, um, I'm about to put it back up probably in like another week or so. And, yeah, you know, musicians and people will be able to come there and feel the vibes and, and record it.
2: Yeah. Do you have equipment in there or do you just bring your own equipment if you're coming down? Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I got equipment in there. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah everything's in there.
2: When was the last time you guys actually made... Music in there because I I just saw all that incredible footage that I never knew before. I guess it was from an old Yo MTV Raps when it was really like the peak time of probably around the first record. Uh, when were you guys making records up in up there until
0: the first Outcast album? Yeah, and the second album we started recording at a hotel, the Biltmore Hotel. We just took the whole top floor. Yeah, and we started like uh, recording ATLN's and at the Biltmore. Yeah. Like 90, 95, maybe.
2: What was the idea? Because I've heard stories like Duran Duran and like crazy bands and Chuck Berry will like take over the whole floor of like some amazing hotel. Was it just because it sounded so against the norm or just the idea that you could do it? Why did you take over the hotel?
0: That was the organized noise thing. We, we kind of wanted a little bit of seclusion because we were at the house, people were just coming by the house and it was kind of disrupting what we were doing. So we wanted to get in one space and kind of block all the noise out and just kind of focus. Yeah. yeah. What
2: about the noise of people downstairs and stuff? I guess you must've just had to take the whole floor under it just to keep the
0: soundproof, to keep a layer. I don't think we turned it up that loud because we we were, we were yeah. pre-production in there then we would go to the studio. It used to be called Boss Town Studios, which is Stankonia now, the studio that I owned, Out studio. Yeah. So there's was a lot of writing sessions in there.
2: Where do you work now? Because there have been so many storied studios in your history. There's obviously Stanconia and stuff, but, and then there's where you have Purple Ribbon. Was that all the same place?
0: Stanconia was like the motherland, you know. We actually got the studio from Bobby Brown. Uh, we saw Bobby Brown. It, w- it was Boss Town. We recorded Southern Playlist in there. The studio was called Boss Town. Bobby Brown owned it. And we were at a show, I think, in North Carolina or something and the studio had been shut down for a minute and we was asking Bobby Brown like, hey man, uh, let us let us uh, get the studio. He was like, man, y'all can have the studio, you know? And so we did a deal with Electro Records when we did our deal for Aquamanite and a part of that deal, we went, looked up the studio, it was in foreclosure. So Sylvia Rhone bought the studio for us as a part of what we did criminal uh, Records. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There must have been some crazy shit behind the couch or things that were left behind. Like, I mean, I used to work in this studio on 54th Street and someone would just be always like, oh, yeah, that's where Puff always used to have sex on that couch. Like those stories like that, they have to have this folklore. I mean, Bobby Brown was, I mean, like we
0: know, a legend and quite wild. Yeah, well, actually, there is a spot in the studio. I like to call it the meatloaf loft. Uh There's a loft upstairs with a bedroom, a bathroom. It's like a studio apartment. And so I started living at the studio, you know what I mean? Because my house, the one that was on MTV Cribs is like an hour away from the studio. So I would just stay at the studio. So it was made it very convenient. Yeah. So it's probably a lot of wild shit took place up there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then it stayed Stankonia. And then is that the studio that you still have? Did you rename it or is that?
0: It's still Stankonia. That's oh, it's still
2: Stankonia. And that's where everything gets done.
0: Yep. Yep. Everybody recorded there. I mean, Amazing. anybody to who's who come in town. Yeah. Yeah, just did a little remodeling.
2: It's funny because you say Southern Playalistic, and I remember first hearing that song and like the wah guitars and the thing. It spoke to me on such a level that I didn't know that I liked hip-hop, I was just getting into hip-hop. I was mostly listening to East Coast stuff, Tribe, and Far Side, things like that. And I you know, like for a lot of people, yours was the introduction to the South, and Dr. Dre it was incredible, obviously, and was doing a very live thing on the West Coast, but it was more polished or something. I don't know what it was, but when I heard Southern Playalistic, like I just remember, like it just it smacked me in the fucking head. I don't know what it was, it spoke to me on so many levels because I love the meters and I love funk and things like that. But yes. the way you guys put it all together. I know whenever you talk to somebody who's at the beginning of doing something that's going to change the world, no one ever feels like they're there changing the world at the moment. You're just all excited, but it must have felt like we're doing something no one else is doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were just down in a dungeon, man, and and you said it It was all funk-based. You know, we were real heavy into all that P-Funk All-Stars, Parliament Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins, like The Meters, James Brown, so... The live instrumentation was was definitely key because when you venture off into those things, you're not stuck in one pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it just creates more feeling in the music. And then I think that's one thing about our music is always got feeling. It's not just in one stale pace. I mean, even from the lyrics, the cadences, like it's, it's never the same. You know what I mean? So yeah, you just have to evolve with it. And when you're using like horns and guitars and live drums, and it just gives you the freedom to express yourself more.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously by the second album, I have to say something so embarrassing. Like, I, I mean, I've listened to that album so much, but I literally, three days ago, I was in the studio working with Lizzo, and I said, I was talking about you, and we were talking about Elevators, and I said, AT Aliens, and I said, what did you say? She goes, AT Aliens, it's the name of the album. I've been saying Atliens for 25 <laughs> years. I will never be afraid to embarrass myself for an for a amusing anecdote, but um. By that record and elevators, you're obviously starting to produce stuff, but on the first record, did you like to be involved with the creative process, like while they're laying down the guitars and stuff, or did they have like were they bringing you like, hey, we did this track last night, do you want to jump on it? Or how did that process
0: work? No, we all be in the room, you know what I mean? And right. a certain lick or, or something and they like, Oh, that's it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It just kind of motivated us, you know, like so what we did after the first record, players ball of course went number one and with six weeks on the top of the rap charts. And so, you know, they came to us, Christmas did was like, do you want to do a publishing deal? You know, we're like, oh shit. Okay, cool. So, young teenagers, we we're gonna give you a hundred thousand dollars a piece. So like, that was like a million dollars of us. We were like, oh shit. Yeah. So first thing we did was we bought cars cause we didn't have a car. Yeah. And then we invested in drum machines and music equipment and we had apartments and we would set up our little pre-production studio and then we start tinkering with the music. So by the time the second album came, we were creating the soundscapes to the lyrics. You know what I'm saying? Songs like atl and elevators, you know, being some of the first stuff that we played for organized noise. And I was like, oh, y'all boy's producing now. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. And right. it just got better and better from there. Did you feel like on the second album, you had enough
2: ideas to do it by yourself? Did you realize that you were just becoming producers and you needed to leave the nest somewhat or were you just kind of making your own shit that was like okay we like what they have over there but we also really like our stuff here
0: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it was just like i mean when you're creative you got to be all you can be you know yeah I mean, since we spent so much time together and, and then we were on the road and we had these ideas so we just started laying stuff down you know what i mean just doing scratch versions of stuff you know what i mean just i mean from writing the hooks and just having fun with the music, like... Yeah. And became really good at it.
2: And then, when did you actually get the studio... When did you guys get your own and build your own studio, Stankonia? Was it around the time of making Stankonia?
0: No, it was um after... We've been there now since... 99? I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not not, sure. Yeah. The time just flew by so fast, but to call it Stankonia, it was probably after Stankonia. Yeah.
2: It's funny, because... um because the wealth and the creative output is not only been huge, but so giant steps in evolution each time. I think of you more like the Beatles. Like the Beatles famously were excited not to tour the minute they could stop touring, because they're like actually being in the studios where we like being the most. And they were competing in this arms race with the Beach Boys and Hendrix and trying to like outdo each other with the creativity, but. I was surprised to read in a, in an interview recently that you just did where you said, actually, your favorite part is going out and playing live as opposed to the studio process.
0: Yes. It's to see your creation come to life in a sea of people singing words that just started in your mind. is an incredible feeling. Yeah. And just the energy, you know what I mean? Just to see, yeah. to bring that much joy to people is what it's all about. Like, I mean, I I love the studio. I love the creative process, but the creative process to me is like making an album is like taking the SAT. You know what I mean? Yeah. For like like a year or two straight. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, you're rethinking and overthinking and you're going back and you're fiddling with things. And, you know, it's never done until they like give it to me, you know what I mean? Up until the last minute. So we're just kind of tinkering with it the whole time. Just like um, the album now, the big sleepover with me and Sleepy Brown has been done, that has been done for like two years. And so we've just been kind of just leaking songs out, just, you know, getting to setting the appetite for what's going on. And I think my whole outlook on it is if you can work on something for a year or a year and a half, two years, and it still sounds fresh to you then it's going to have that much playback power when it gets to the consumer yeah you know what i'm saying
2: yes definitely i find that i mean you've told this story many times but about sitting on the beat for the way you move for yeah. five years or was it right. three years because yeah. w- what was the story you wanted to wait till you had the right thing or the right time to release it
0: sometimes it just happens you know what i mean like i, I have a, a playlist full of music that is incorporated on my phone and i and i put a lot of my favorite songs from all genres for any artist and you might have these demo beats pop up ever so often. You know what I mean? And it might be stuff that's been, you just, you might hear it every day or you might hear it every couple of months, but days it'll speak to you. yeah. And it's just like, Hey, I'm fucking with that today. I'm gonna go to the studio and I'm gonna put something on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or when it's time to, I call it beat harvesting, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: You just get a whole bunch of stuff you like and try to piece it together. so it kind of streamline and then you just start attacking it piece by piece. And I don't work on just one song at a time. I work on the whole album at the same time. You know what I mean? Like I might put a guitar on this record, put a hook on this other record, put some horns on this, come back, change the beat, put some 808s on this, bring my keyboard player, put some synthesizers on this other record. Then I might have a verse, you know what I mean? So yeah. it just keeps it exciting for me as, as a writer.
2: It's true. Something you said really resonated because right now, especially in the pandemic, basically, a lot of people who had a record ready to drop in spring 2020 have sat on records for a year, year and a half. And it's like, at first, whether it was a record I was involved with or just a friend, you know, you want to think if it's great. If it's classic it'll stand the test of time but there's also this saying well you know the style of drums people's shit changes is this snare gonna be hot in like a year and a half from now or whatever but i think you're right i think that if it's classic and it sits with you through the whole course of making a record it's gonna maybe transcend
0: those little things that we have right absolutely and no matter what comes out because we're not trying to follow those trends either
2: One of the most unexpected and insightful things about doing this podcast has been hearing how a lot of the people I've looked up to most of my life, how they make music, and being kind of gobsmacked by some of their processes. When DJ Premier told us he would always make the singles last when producing an album for Gangstar or J.Ru or whoever, I'm not going to lie, my mind was kind of blown. I mean, I love that idea in theory. Basically, Premier is saying when he's making the albums, He makes sure he's making music for music's sake, not thinking about the pop charts or the radio, etc. I.e., we make what feels right to us, and at the very end, we make the slightly more commercial joints, the crossover records. I can't imagine how you could do this. For me, the best records just come when they come. I've never had much control about when in the process they appear. I mean, sometimes you're just lucky to even get one single. But the history of music is littered with these amazing stories of artists handing in their albums and the label or a manager goes, Damn, the album's awesome, but we just don't have that first single, that thing that can set off the whole project. Apparently, Springsteen was even told this when he handed in Born in the USA, an album that we all know had singles out the wazoo. But the first single is really unique in the way it has to encapsulate the spirit of the whole project. It has to do this weird voodoo. Anyway, Springsteen went back to the crib and penned Dancing in the Dark. The Beasties apparently were told something similar when they handed in Ill Communication, and Adrock went back and wrote Sabotage. I guess there's something great about writing that single with the perspective of the whole album already in hand. Big Boy, as he talks about it, it's obvious that he's driven conceptually when making the album. He needs to be working on the whole album at the same time. And, well, I mean, Stanconia, Atlians, aquemini I mean, these album titles don't just conjure music. They conjure entire worlds. So it is no surprise this man works the way that he does. And now, a quick break.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
2: So when you're making a record, then in that way, when you're coming back to it and working on different songs at the same time, do you sort of know a little bit what the fourteen songs are, what the what the track listing is? Do you have do you have to have the the concept of the record first as you go into it? How does it work?
0: Sometimes, sometimes you can know what it's going to be about. You know what I mean? But right when the the lyrics are based on what's happening in the real world in real time, yeah, yeah, shit can change. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's, there has to be some kind of thought put into it that's going to make the listener think, you know what I mean? So it has to be relevant for the time. You're going to have your braggadocio or whatever you want to do where you can just do that shit all day, but when you're going to try to make something that's meaningful, then it, that comes from experiencing and living and doing different things. And that that's, that's where the inspiration comes from.
2: Yeah. I'm really excited for the Sleepy record because I DJ a lot and, uh, every now and then I'll break out like one of the deeper cuts from the, your catalog or something and just start playing it and the one that the last year before I guess before pandemic started I was playing all the time especially on tour was I Can't Wait I Think I Can't Wait was like this deep cut that was like it's one of like something happens when that song plays it it changes the molecules in the room it's wild it's like it's the people it's a little bit of like oh I remember this and it has this melancholy, and this joy at the same time.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Positive vibrations. That that was from the, I think, Barbershop 2 soundtrack or something. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, man. So, we were just in the groove, man. We we perform that, you know, to this day. Yeah, you do? Yeah, absolutely.
2: How can you talk a little bit about your relationship and how far you go back with Sleepy? Was Sleepy from original, I know he was on the first record, was he on original Dungeon Family?
0: Yes, Sleepy Brown is one third of Organized Noise, the production team. And he is actually, you know, he was on the very first Outcast song, Play the Ball, you know what I mean? Yeah. Actually on the title track, Southern Playlist, Cadillac Music. Yeah. So so clean, the yeah. way you move. Like, we've been in, like, he's like my big brother, you know what I mean? And yeah. when I started just touring and just stuff, he was like, hey, man, I want to go out with you. So, for the past five years or so, or maybe even longer, like, he's been on the road with me. And being on the road, and doing these classics. And then, you know, we have so many records together. It came a time, it was like, hey man, let's do some new shit. It's me and you, let's do a whole album. And and yeah. we were in Austin, Texas, and this beat came on. There's a beat, Can't Sleep. It was like one of the first songs we dropped from this project. And i never forget it. The beat came on and it was like, lying, I didn't get to sleep, didn't, didn't, didn't get to sleep. Crazy. Yeah. And my sister, Shay, was on the bus with us. And she was like, oh my God, what's that? I had this beat, mind you, for about, for years. Right. And it was like, big sleepover, big sleepover. And it was like, bam. And from there, we just started recording. Right. Yep. Amazing. Organically created, never genetically modified.
2: Excellent. Um, Wait, that just, shit, there's so many things. And every time you say something, I'm like, I want to ask about that. I want to ask about that. The one thing that I did remember, though, because you did say player's ball, Players Ball has this crazy story. I know you probably told it a thousand times, so I, I won't make you retell it if you don't want, but the, it started as a Christmas record. Yes. Then by the time it became the first Outkast single, I think you took out some of the Christmas stuff. It had the bells.
0: Yeah, we took the sleigh bells out. Right. And changed Christmas Day to All Day and Day, was and day Me, All Day Every Day. Yes. And did a, a reprise with Sleepy sung the reprise and remixed it. And it was at the top of the charts for the long so
2: that's the what the remix, the chords in the remix right. are some of my favorite chords of all time. And I I used to play that version. I don't know if that's because maybe in New York that's because I I was DJing in clubs. I feel like that was the one that maybe even jumped off a little more in New York at that moment. But what the fuck was the story? How did that remix that's come that's together? That's Sleepy,
0: Brown. that's Sleepy Brown playing them chords on there. See wow. like Sleepy Brown was the man with the melody. Yeah. Rico was the 808 guy and Ray was a drum programmer and we three together is a monster. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, 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 definitely. So it's, it's all full circle, man. It's, it's just like, you know, we just evolved as as men and started as, you know, they started as mentors to us and, and big brothers and that's how we all still family to this day, man. Like yeah. we all unit and be able to do this and just, you know, get out here and take care of our families and, and make people happy. That's what it's all about. Spreading positive vibration in this wicked ass world.
2: Yeah. Actually, honestly, I'm not blowing smoke. My favorite concert, and I tell people this all the time, is of all time was uh, Outkast. The night before the Super Bowl, when the Falcons were in the Super Bowl, it was Super Bowl 33 in Miami, and you guys played a tiny club show. It, it was The thing was so crazy is you were already playing arenas, and if it wasn't Super Bowl, I don't think, and I don't think if, if the Falcons weren't down there, it was all like Dirty Birds in Miami. Right. You, I'm sure you wouldn't have played it, but do you, do you have any recollection of that show?
0: Vaguely. Right. Some things I remember, man, but we smoked so much, man Like, yeah. oh my boy <laughs> Yeah. It's just well, crazy
2: Take it from me, it was incredible And it, I think everybody felt so lucky Because we were all new It was probably like a 1,200 person club This club called The Cameo And I actually used to DJ down there Oh, I remember there. The Cameo You remember The Cameo? Yeah, I
0: played there several times I mean, we yeah. played there a few times Yep, yep
2: And I think, like, either when it went into I mean, the whole show, but, like the most elated, because you said the word bringing joy to people. The word uh, joy like is the only thing I can think of the way that when either Rosa Parks or Skewer on the Barbie or something came in, because I had only been out for like two months, it was the biggest shit in the world, and I've never bounced, like, I don't think I've ever felt that much pure joy to show. Cause we you know, you make music, you go to shows. I don't need to pretend to be cool, but I, I you know, I've been to a lot of shows my day. Like I can't, I don't even know. That was like the spirit. I don't know what came over me for yes. fucking two hours during that show. Yes,
0: yes, 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 yes. And that's why I still perform and still rock shit to this day. That shit is the best feeling in the world, man. Yeah, it's better than any fucking drug.
2: I really wasn't blowing smoke. I can still conjure the visceral joy of that show nearly 22 years ago. The energy when the beat from Rosa Parks dropped. I was jumping up and down pogoing like a kid. Part of it was the fact that everyone in that crowd knew they were privileged to be seeing outcasts in this small club because they were already playing arenas at this point. Plus it was Super Bowl weekend, the Falcons were playing and it felt like half of Atlanta was in Miami. And then probably the main part was just seeing one of the greatest groups of all time perform at their peak i don't actually know if i remember anything else specifically from 1999 but i remember that show being on a full high when it was over walking out of the cameo into the night the only other show i think i felt that at was d'angelo at radio city on the voodoo tour i remember taking the train home after the show my girlfriend at the time was very sad and i asked her what was wrong and she said to me Well, in the year we've been together, I don't think I've ever seen you happy like you were at that show. And I had no reply because she was right. It's crazy what an incredible show can do to you. It's truly transformative. Your favorite songs coming out the mouths of the people who wrote them with the collective energy of all those other people around you having the same experience. It truly is the best. And for many musicians and performers, feeling that energy back from their crowd is the lifeblood. I'm certainly not comparing one of my DJ gigs to an Outkast show, but that feeling I get when I build the crowd up into this euphoric joy, it it is the best. It's not an ego thing like, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing, you guys love me. But it's, it's just seeing the joy on people's faces, the sweat, the collective swaying of a dance floor back and forth in Rhapsody. Anytime I think I might actually be done with DJing, I have one of those nights and I'm like, I love this too much. There's no way I'm giving this up big boy well you can tell there's absolutely no way he will be giving this up anytime soon either are you back touring again now yes i never stopped i never stopped i just meant the slowing down because of the pandemic and just all the shows stopping for a minute
0: Um, you know what during the during the pandemic actually i was doing like Corporate live stream. Okay. Gigs. Like I have a whole yeah. stage and a whole setup at at Stankonia. Yeah. But it was weird though, cause it was like just cameraman with mask on and no crowd. It was like doing late night talk shows with with, right. with crowds. I mean, it was cool. I mean, the paper was astronomical. You know what <laughs> I mean? But yeah, I had to go from my house to Stankonia and back. So it it was it was on some cool stuff like that. Yeah. As soon as the shit opened up, boom, it was gone. And now it's like, do
2: you remember the first show back, like in front of crowds? Like, do you, was that feeling just incredible? Do you do you remember what the first one was?
0: The first one I did in front of crowds was actually here in Atlanta in Centennial Park. It was called the Big Night Out. Okay. I had uh, the killer Mike and everybody with me. It was like uh, the first show here, and no problem. It wasn't no super spreader event, nothing. They had people. It was weird because they had people like sectioned off in like little cages and shit. Wow. It, it was it was weird, but right yeah but it was still they still felt what we were doing yeah 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 in the middle of downtown they didn't talk about it i guess because it was positive you know what right. i
2: mean yeah of course and did you and just seeing the joy and all that shit on everybody's face and having that connection were you aware how much you missed it
0: yes 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 yeah. it was like it was weird because everybody had the mask on so okay. you couldn't see their facial expressions but when they applause and scream, you can hear them, but they, they had to keep the mask on. You know what I mean? Right. Outside. Right. So that's weird. But the first one without the mask was I did a show for first responders in, in Texas. Okay. A couple of years in Texas. And then it was like, you know, all first responders and things. And it was without the mask. And it just felt good to be back out there because the people were just smiling and having a good time.
2: Yeah. I DJed in Abu Dhabi. Have you played much shows in like the Middle East and the like over there, Dubai and stuff like that?
0: I went to Dubai, but I didn't have a show that I went just to go. And then I had a show in Lebanon, like after my Dubai trip, which was weird. Like, cause okay. we got to Lebanon and then you see like Ritz-Carlton's with like, look like a, a tank or a cannonball or something was shrapnel on the side of the oh, building. Shit. And all the barbed wire around these five-star hotels and shit like that. And we played, it was the coolest fucking venue. The stage came out of the ground on the beach. Oh, they got some God. of the best architecture over there in the world, man. But. Too many bullets.
2: Yeah, is it? Was it festival or was it just uh, uh, was this solo show? It's, it's, or, it, okay, it's, it's me so,
0: solo dolo, babe. Solo dolo.
2: I was gonna say that Abu Dhabi thing was sort of like what you said. It, it was a little weird because you had to be in your group, like how you said there were cages at the Atlanta show. Right. Like you had to stay at your table. And I was like, oh yeah. fuck, am I gonna be? Am I DJing a lounge essentially tonight? But then <laughs> the minute I started, everybody just kind of. Jumped up and it, from from where I was standing, if you're just looking at the people from their shoulders up, it just looked like a dance floor, actually. But like people just had to stay in their zones. And, you know, because yeah. we're a little further down the road, you did not have to wear the masks and stuff, which was kind of nice. Right, right. I guess the other thing is because you love shows and connecting with people. And sometimes the further you go away from home, the more people appreciate you being there because they know that. you don't have to be there you've come out of your way you've taken some 12-hour flight do you just like i'm sure there have been so many highlights but do you remember a couple shows or some place where you didn't even know what to expect and you're like this is just the most wonderful experience this is why i do this
0: uh the gold coast australia yeah crazy like it's beautiful man i mean it's fucked up over there now (laughs) but right back when you know before the covids. yeah like, I was thinking about getting a house in Australia. That shit was so nice, man. Black sand, this is yeah. crazy stuff, man. The, the opera house, just seeing, you know, different monuments and things like that. Yeah. It's just dope to go down there. The flight is is a killer. But It's a killer. I mean, one time I flew, and I had to do something for MTV. I flew there, was on the ground. I was in the air for that many hours, and then on the ground for, like, five hours, got back on the flight to fly back to come do some more shit.
2: yeah. So. Australia is an incredible place. I will, that's when when I was asking that question in my mind that popped in because they are it is so far away and there are such great crowds anyway because they like good music. They kind of like weird shit like I think that they've got that station Triple J that's sort of like alternative but plays but it's like the most popular thing. It would be like if Clear Channel was like alter, an alternative station or something. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. And right. then the people there. That's definitely some of my favorite places to play as well. When was the last time you were, you
0: were over there? Uh, it's been about six years, maybe six, seven years. Yeah.
2: So this, because uh, I've been doing this interview series for The Fader and you've been on the cover quite a number of times and, and I gave really interesting points in your career and the last time... Was with Killer Mike and it was like really like when you were becoming an entrepreneur and it was really about the I mean you might have always been an entrepreneur but about Purple Ribbon and building the label and it was It's hard to think about it like this way. We're, we're the same age, but um, I've looked up to you for so long and You've obviously been so much further ahead of what you've done I don't literally say it was on the same level, but it was exactly that same time 2005 You were 30 years old and you say in it you're like yeah i go to the office around one i stay till nine and then we stay till two making music and that's even though i had like a label that was nowhere near as successful was i was doing the exact same thing at that time and i was thinking it really reminded me of it it's like it's something that you really only have the energy to do like at that point in your life like when you look back at that now the fact that you would go to the studio, like go to the office and make like marketing decisions for eight hours and then go to like the fucking studio and then have to like access another part of your brain and make classics for the next seven hours. Like does the thought of that kind of be like, holy shit, I can't believe I used to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One one good thing about it is the record company was right across the street from the studio. Yeah. So I could walk across the street to the studio and then that's why I would stay in the loft because I'd be so tired. And from working on compilations to having Janelle Monet and Killer Mike and just working on my solo projects all at the same time. It w- was it was a lot. But if you yeah, if you want it, you gotta go get it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And how much were you sleeping during that time? I imagine, like, could you are you like puff where you could do like two hours of sleep,
0: you're just oh, like no, driven we, by the energy? No. No, I, I gotta get my sleep. I you know, that's how I stayed. My face looked so young with no wrinkles. You gotta get your feet to rest. You know what I mean? Yeah. You gotta do that. You gotta get your rest. Yeah. Got to,
2: man. I would do this crazy shit. I was running this little label. It wasn't super successful. I had a couple of acts on there, and we'd do the same shit till six. Then I would literally just walk around the block once, like literally around Broadway and Canal Street, and be like, okay, now I make music. And I think luckily, like that was right when I met Amy Winehouse, and like there were people around that were inspiring enough. But like, I, I was damn near about to have like an anxiety attack every day during that point in my life because doing that label stuff, even if you're doing it for your friends and cause you believe in it is, is very stressful. Like how, how long did it take you before, like, not the honeymoon wore off, but like where, or did you just have a good team around you and it was sort of fine?
0: No, I, I had a, I had a good team. At first it started out as, you know, a Cormonaut records Then Dre was like, I don't want to do the label thing anymore. So I changed it from Cormonaut to Purple Ribbon. And then, so it was all on me, but I had a dope team. But it just, it takes a, a, a lot of commitment because at the time I'm still touring, I'm still recording, I'm still an artist myself. And, you know, that's why I could say like from Killer Mike and Janelle, to sign those two and to see where they're at now, I didn't have to hold their hand like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. We we all functioned as a family and everybody had a vision of what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. And so I was just, I was there for, you know, of course, creative and spiritual big brotherhood. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and to see them, you know, spread their wings and fly now, that's, that's I, I did that.
2: It's incredible actually, when you think of the legacy of what you're doing there and Janelle is where she is now and Killer Mike and Run the Jewels. And like, I just found out the other day that Future was like an old school Dungeon family head. Like, I don't even know how the fuck I didn't know about that, but what was his deal? Do you remember Meathead?
0: yeah yeah he was the second generation dungeon family okay it was a couple of them guys out of there man and he's actually rico's wade's uh cousin yeah too you know what i mean so yeah you know he came that's when bubba sparks and um you had like concrete you had the the group called connect boulevard a lot of the young guys that moved into the new dungeon after we were already out flourishing yeah and so like i said it's like whoever wanted it went and got it
2: yeah what was the difference between janelle back then i mean obviously i remembered that she was on purple ribbon and and when i started to like do some research and when i knew we were about to talk and i was like oh yeah fuck of course she did she was always this really cool eccentric left field like obviously a very special artist and and what was the difference between someone like that and like tightrope is it is are they finding that thing or is the world just catching up to them like how do do you think it works
0: i I think the world just kind of catching up to them because the music has always been like very theatrical. Hers has been always been cinematic. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was a whole theme and a vision. The whole Android movement and what they were doing—they were thinking way futuristic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when she—I think one of her big records is an organized produced song called "I Like That." Yeah. And it's kind of pulled back a little bit, like more sultry R&B, and it kind of resonated with people more. But she's a dynamic singer and a great performer. Yeah.
2: perhaps no musical family in the 90s spawned more talent than the dungeon family named for the basement studio of organized noise producer rico wade the dungeon as it was called the first wave of quote unquote family included outcast Goody mob sleepy brown joy and of course all the incredible records produced by organized noise like TLC's Waterfalls, for starters. When you get into the second wave of extended dungeon family, well that's where it even gets crazier. You have Killer Mike, Janelle Monae, Future, a solo member of Goody Mob named CeeLo who forms an Barkley and makes one of the biggest songs of all time. And that it would be over a decade until Killer Mike and Future found their peak stardom makes you realize just how ahead of the times it was. Sometimes an artist can be so special and ahead of the times, it does take a while for the world to catch up to them, or for them to figure out how to dumb it down for the world a little. I highly recommend the excellent documentary The Art of Organized Noise as a chronicle of the magic energy going on at that time. How one place can be the hub of so much talent, young unknowns that burst out of nowhere and change music forever, and nurture and inspire this scene around them. The infectiousness that all these artists were fostering, and then, of course, the inevitable sad demise that comes after success. The squabbling, the infighting, the egos, the demons, and the addiction. But as tragic as that part is, the musical legacy is staggering. Also, I don't think any record like actually drops harder than Kryptonite. The, the intro... I, that was like probably the last era when I was really like a gigging DJ. I'm talking about going to Vegas three times a month and this shit. And this is before you could make money going to Vegas. This is like the the pre EDM days. But you could play that acapella intro. I'll be up on it. I'm not going to do your own words <laughs> to you. But you could elongate that for like a minute and a half before the beat drop because the excitement, you could build the crowd up, build it up until that dropped on the one and it was just
0: like the craziest shit i don't know i I close my show with that to this day really that's great because it's like yeah you just want to hit them in the mouth right before you leave close up, yeah yeah man i don't care if they've been on 10 the whole hour and 30 minutes when kryptonite come on it's like the show just started over again yeah yeah
2: so how did that one come about was that a beat that you had in the tank for a little while or was that really spontaneous how was that song made
0: it was um one of my my childhood friends uh Nasilo Reddick um, is a, a part of a production team called the Beat Bullies, and they were like, you know, yeah. in-house producers for, for Purple Ribbon. And that I can't remember. The GM brought me the beat one day, and I just was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. And it was like, "Man, you gotta, you gotta get on this record. You gotta yeah. get on, make it a posse cut. You gotta get on this record. It's Rock the yeah. legend, Killer Mike on here, C Bone." It's like you gotta get on this record. And when they brought it to me, I went across the street again, went from the office across the street and murdered it. And that shit was the truth. Yeah. No, that shit was incredible. Eight talent anthem, man. A talent.
2: When I hear it, I could picture this one nightclub in Vegas called Pure. And it's just like I just remember like the walls would start sweating. Like it was just like, it was so much fun. So Uh, You made about 100,000 DJ's life easy for three minutes during that song, or or five minutes depending on how long you want to drag it out. My experience on a smaller level with with labels and stuff is that you essentially sign something because you love it and you know that you have this platform to help them get their shit out there because you're already big and you believe in it. But what always happens is you're still the biggest star in the label and there's always going to be some kind... Like I I always tell my friends, I'm like, do you want to find the quickest way to fall out with your friends? Start a label and sign them. Like, and and I know you've talked and you and Mike are great now and make great music and stuff, but there was, you know, I know that you've talked about your past and stuff like that. Like, would you do it again? Would you do the label again? Or do you think it's it's just a thankless
0: fucking task? No, it's got to be the right artist. It's gotta be the right artist, you know what I mean? And I mean, I got the facility for it. You know what I mean? I have the the home, I mean, where they can record all day, but they just gotta be the right artist, the right artist. And it's not a art lot a lot of artist development, you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of sit around and kind of suck up game. It's gotta yeah. be somebody that's got that gotta want it. You know what I mean? They gotta yeah. pretty much be kind of self-contained. I mean, I have a stable of producers, so there's no shortage of music. Yeah, but they just gotta be talking about something and have something to offer.
2: Yeah, what are you looking for? So it's I imagine Stankonia has a lot of rooms. You're in there probably all the time, but there's other artists you're bringing in. People at this point, whether it's a singer, a band, rapper, what are you looking for? To be talking about something, or to sound like no one else, to be original? Yeah, yeah it's
0: got to sound like, sound like somebody else and somebody's going to add something to the world. I, yeah. I like world changers, you know what I mean? It's got to be left, all the way left. Yeah. And sound like nothing that's out there. I mean, because a lot of the stuff now is like cut and paste. But
2: mm-hmm. and you've always gone to different artists. You've always gone to like, obviously, you did the great record with Fantagram, uh, Little Dragon, sort of eccentric artists. And you've talked about growing up like Kate Bush. You love Kate Bush. For Kate yes. Bush of the Far Side, whatever. Um, yeah. Have that actually has that? I know you has that gotten any further doing a record with Kate Bush? I know you've been like reaching it out, putting it out into the ether for a minute.
0: I have a monster hit with Kate Bush that I'm just holding. Are you serious? I'm holding it. It's a it's a fucking monster. So and you've
2: it you you made music together?
0: Yes, we have. Yes, that's fucking get, incredible. Yeah. yeah, you get it here first, buddy. Yeah, it's it's it's. Are you? It's, s- the dream come true, and it's the people are gonna fucking love it. It's it's, it's fucking incredible.
2: Oh my God! Yeah. So, so, how long did it take? Because you've been saying this for so long, and you almost sound like I'm just, you know, like you were trying to will it into the universe, which is just yeah. sending good energy. How long did it actually take for her to kind of come back and be like, "Hey, yeah, let's do something" or whatever, whatever. However, Kate Bush talks.
0: Well, she's she's a very, very, very classy lady, and when we were on the Outcast Twenty tour, I got tickets. Uh, me and my wife and we went to go see her her show that she had to play the live shows yeah and so from there I get invited backstage we have some wine and we talk and you know her kid is there he's about the same age as my kids which is cool and she signs a album for me and give me a number so after that about a year or so passed, and I told her I was coming back. I just said, hey, when can we do a song? You know, just send her a, right. a text every now and then. I talked to her on the phone. Hello, hello, so lovely. And so I came back and she's like, let's go to dinner. So we went and she took me to dinner to this cool little pub place where I had almond cognac. Yeah, so, yeah. And she, we was both throwing them back. It was it was the coolest experience. So we had dinner and then we like, okay. Uh, her, her son was going off to college and she was just like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get to something when I get my studio set back up. And so my manager, being the great, great manager he is, he reached out to her manager uh, a couple of years ago and was like, hey, we need to make make this happen. And I just so happened to have the the, the right song that is fucking phenomenal and sent it to her. Wow. And it had the words on there and she had to sing the words. And then I wrote my verse and my boy Dreamer, Go Dreamer, wrote her parts and wrote the hook. And it is incredible. That is, I, it's, it's incredible.
2: Is that is that something that are you just, can you, is it going to come in the next year? Is it just you're going to hold yeah. on whenever
0: the universe, whenever it's right? Yeah, like, yeah. whenever I think they deserve it, I'm going to give it to them. <laughs> that,
2: is, that is a big scoop you just gave yes, us. Thank you very scoop. much.
0: And I'm going to tell you another thing, too, I was thinking, too, because you know how these NFTs are supposed to be like works of art, right? So yes. I'm, I'm thinking maybe this is that perfect art piece. Of course, to have a, a something stunningly visual to go along with it as an NFT, yeah, I'll blow the whole world up.
2: That that will, that will. <laughs> or you could, or you could just make only one copy, like the Wu Tang album pocket thirty million dollars or something. <laughs> it's it's that not enough. Really
0: now the world gotta hear because it's, it's, uplifting. Of it's, of it's, it's, it's uplifting. it's uplifting.
2: yeah, wonderful. you can't, you can't do that. Of
0: course. So that collaboration right there was like the last piece of the puzzle. You know yeah. what I mean? As far as. My legacy goes, like the only other person I wanted to work with was, would have been Bob Marley. Yeah. And I've worked with everybody that I wanted to work with mm-hmm. now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this one right here is special because I've been a fan of her since I was in middle school. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's one of the reasons why I started doing music. How did you discover? Kevin, were you
2: just listening to the radio or?
0: No, everybody got the weird old uncle, right? Okay. So <laughs> my mom's brother, her younger brother, my uncle Russell, he turned me on The Prince he turned me on to Genesis, Phil Collins, Guns N' Roses, and he turned me on. He listened to everything. Yeah. Michael Jackson and, and all that. And so he had this record player, and he had Kate Bush. And he would tell me the stories behind the songs, and I was just intrigued. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, How this is deep? And then to find out that she was producing and writing all this stuff, and then she worked with Peter Gabriel, and I love Peter Gabriel. So I used to ride my bike to school, listening, running up that hill. Crazy. Crazy as a boy, and now as a grown ass man with three kids and a grandson. Yeah,
2: Uh, congratulations.
0: Yeah, man, for sure. Like, God is good, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed and highly favored, man.
2: Wow, is that our first scoop? I feel like Kurt Loder in the 80s, breaking news. Two of music's most beloved and acclaimed artists hook up for duet. Maybe this episode's going viral. In all honesty, though, it is kind of amazing to think about it, right? Kate Bush and Big Boy on a record that it probably took 30 years to put together. Kate Bush, one of music's most famous recluses, coming out of recording retirement to make a song with one of her most famous biggest fans, Big Boy. It's a testament to Big Boy's putting that good energy out into the ether, obviously being Big Boy, and some light, harmless stalking backstage at shows. But I think most importantly, really, it's just a record that's going to make a lot of people very excited and very happy, myself included. That was the most incredible sidetrack story of all time. But um, what I also wanted to ask you is, uh, what are you listening to right now that's got you kind of like excited?
0: A little bit of everything. I t- like I got like 20,000 songs on here on my phone. So I just put it on shuffle. I could just read off what pops up. Yeah. Um, Mumford and Sons, Weekend, Danger Mouse, Billy Ocean, Mickey Howard, Goody Mob, Janet Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass, EPMD, The Spinners, Prince, Tupac, more Prince, Capadonna, Kate Bush, Kate Bush, James Brown, The Who. I can keep going on. Yeah, yeah. It's just, no, just that's... And ever, and ever You know what I mean? Yeah. Which
2: what Billy Ocean song? I'm curious, cause Billy has some like people only know him from those like eighties like soundtrack hits, but he had some very soulful tracks like one of those nights you feel like getting down and like the early sh- the early eighties shit.
0: History Lady was the last one out. Okay. Yeah. Yep, yep. I remember when my grandson was born and uh my son. I turned him on to a lot of music. I was so proud. Like, I went down to go meet him and my son was playing this song over and over again. Like, so we were just outside eating by the really? pool. Was, he was just kept playing it. So like my, my kids, palette, they turning me on to a whole bunch of shit too. Like, you know what I mean? A bunch yeah. of all time. Especially my daughter. She got an ear. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You mean all, like older stuff that you didn't know no. or new
0: stuff? No, like, new, like new shit. Like okay. it just all kind of new shit. Like yeah. uh, Bobby McFerrin's son, Tyler McFerrin. Okay. Yeah. She, my daughter turned me on to that. It's another song from the other day. Oh, Masego. I love Masego. Yeah. Well, you've done yes. a song with them now, right? Yeah, 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 I, I didn't I know just who he saw was that's until, great. until he called to do a song. Masego, yeah. cool I like
2: Masego a lot. You mentioned uh, Goody Mob. Goody Mob as well, like when Cell Therapy came out. That that must have come out in between your first and second album. That felt like this the kind of next wave of Dungeon Family
0: shit. Yep, yep. They came at the Southern Playlist.
2: I think Southern Playlistic Players Ball into that song, especially being in New York where it felt so foreign. Like it felt so far away. It was just fucking it was incredible.
0: Yeah, man. Squad. Like I Squad. Just gotta a, yeah, pray for the sheep. Yeah. Damn it.
2: Um and then I just, because you mentioned Tupac, and then we've been talking about organized noise so much. One of my favorite, and I think it's more of a slept on organized noise song, is Blackberry Molasses by Mr.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: And I, there's always these stories. And when I, you know, probably like everybody, you get into a song and you start going down the internet wormhole, researching all the shit. And apparently it was Tupac's favorite song. It was uh, the, the weekend that he tragically was shot and died. That's all he was listening to in the car over and over again do you remember that song blackberry molasses Oh, absolutely that's one of my favorites man that's one of my favorites i'm
0: fucking you know bobby valentino was in mr and he becomes yeah but this organized noise man geniuses yeah out a doubt throw that word around but it's not many of us
2: it's true it's true Uh another thing that there's like all these moments that obviously that you or your work or outcast was Somewhere, like, I almost can chart my life at different records that you put out, but I DJed the 2004 Grammy party that you had, the big one in L.A., uh, do you remember the huge one when you won Album of the Year? It was in this huge yeah. mansion.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they had the casino set up in there. I remember yeah. missing being in there. Yep, yep. That's the night and that they did a pumped episode on us. Did they really? Yeah, I never yeah. saw
2: that. What what, oh, what was man. that?
0: It was like, that's when the Maybacks first came out. And so okay. Mercedes gave us two Maybacks for the awards and all that. I had a brown one and Dre had a black one. Nobody had had the car. And Ashton Kutcher, they they got us good. They They set it up. They made it seem like one of our drivers. They had the Maybach crash through a store window, and how Ashton Kutcher say he sold it. <laughs> he had the helicopters in the sky and everything, and yeah. that's what, you know, what was going on. We was like, "What the fuck?" And then we was about to fight the fight the driver. It, it was crazy. It was like a wild episode of punk. It was so many curse words and that shit, man.
2: Wait, on on the night that you've just won album of the year, then yes. or the day on the way At, to the Grammys? After we,
0: after we left the party, they punked us.
2: That's, that's like actually
0: disrespectful. <laughs> like, I mean, I know,
2: I know it's funny and r- maybe, but like, I just like on, on one of the most, I don't know, yeah. celebrated nights. It's like,
0: yeah, yeah, they did it. They did. They did it. And Cause that wow. was the only way they got us. You know what I'm saying? Cause it was so believable.
2: Yeah. And then, yeah. and then how, how long did it take you to forgive them for that? Or were you kind of just instantly like, okay, haha? Like, ha. no, we just
0: kind of was like, oh, they got us. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Cause it was, it was quick. Yeah. It was quick.
2: They had some pretty good punk. They forgot about that show sometimes, but that was sort of really ahead of the... Because now everything's documented and there's yeah. a video for everybody, whatever, making a fool of themselves. But this, this was like, it was kind of yeah. like... Sometimes it was funny. The thing that I really remember about that Grammy party is because the DJ booth was in this big outdoor area. I can't even remember. It had like this big dome over it i could see the moment because obviously the artists always come later the party's packed and popping and we probably played the way you move 18 times at that point and <laughs> but i saw the moment where you walked into the crowd for the first time because it's like it was your night it was like the seas parted like there was such an excitement every because obviously everybody's waiting for the guests of honor to show but uh I don't know. Do you re- do you remember anything about that night? Is it a blur? Is it just? Does it seem like a dream? I mean, obviously you've had a lot of milestones.
0: It seemed like a dream, but it was great because me and Dre both flew about 30 members of our family each out there, and we took over to this hotel out there. And so, you know, I had my grandmoms, my aunts, and my uncles, and my grandma was she had she had never flown before. They had to do like a. Um, a Mr. T on the A team, like give her a tranquilizer, <laughs> get on the airplane, man, and just for you know our mothers and everybody to be an audience. It was, it was. You can't, you can't beat that
2: shit. Yeah, it was such an incredible year because it was Speaker Box Love Below, Hey Our Way You Move, and Crazy in Love. So that it was like I think Rich Harrison who produced Crazy in Love who produced so many great bangers. I remember him walking into the party, but. You know, he's a producer, people aren't going to recognize like that. But there was like a vibe and everybody was like, hey man. But then, and then you guys, when you came in, it was just like, and I'm sure we just threw on The Way You Move, like right at that thing. And I'm very embarrassed to say, but uh, I got very drunk that night at the end of my set, because I think another DJ, Goldfinger, or somebody finished the (laughs) set. And I was just leaning over the balcony. as The ballet was bringing people its cars and I just kept singing. You like the way I move (laughs) You like the way Anyway, I'm sorry to disrespect your song like that
0: No, man, it's all good, bro
2: So, um I'm back in my old studio in New York And when I moved in here There was just a plaque on one of the doors That's a storage closet That says the Boom Boom Room I never really thought about it Because it was just always called the Boom Boom Room And now that word has become like a part of I don't know, like the cultural dictionary but did you actually invent the term like did you bring that term into existence with that MTV Cribs I, I, was, I was trying to figure it out I think I think I did <laughs> Like do you, like, did you get it from somebody else or did you just remember like no we're going to call this the boom boom room
0: we're just like we're going to call it the boom boom room
2: that's and crazy
0: I just built another whole wing to my house just to do that like yeah. uh, pole and all the aquarium and it's, yeah. it's crazy so fun fact i still own that house and i'm about to put that one i've been remodeling that one that was going to be on airbnb shortly too okay so yeah, so, with the pole and all that shit
2: because that was your old house that's actually where you live that was in the studio yeah, yeah it's yeah, crazy
1: because
2: you know like if you had trademarked that term like there's a nightclub in new york called the boom boom room like, yeah
0: man yeah. Nice. yeah 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 it's all right
2: um it sounds like you have like a healthy, like you're like, if I work now, it's for fun.
0: Yeah, it's, it's recreational, man. Right. Like, there's no pressure. It's just, you know, trying to create the perfect groove, you know? And Yeah. something that's going to excite me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Make me want to rhyme and make me want to write. Like, yeah. it's got to be that. I mean, this is something that a lot of
2: your peers and, and, and people... T- artists that we all love have fallen into this thing of like trying to chase ghosts the ghosts of success you know i'm not going to name any names but like people are just continually doing records like as they get older with like whoever the youngest hottest person is just to like kind of keep a a foothold and there's like a little bit of a i think there's a little bit of a desperation on that i'm not going to knock anybody else's hustle but you seem to have this very like just this healthy thing with it. Like, yes, I've made records. I've, I've set records like there's there's I'm just going to make the shit that makes me excited at this point.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, people ask, like, who's on the album with the big sleepover? I'm like, uh, shit, Killer Mike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then who is, is like is Killer Mike's on like three songs? Yeah. 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 That's about it.
2: And that's the main thing that you're working on right now when you go in the studio. It's done.
0: It's done. OK it's coming very soon.
2: Yeah, you can tell. Sorry, I I usually someone would tell me like hey, he's dropping an album. You might want to ask him about that. But I apologize for not no, knowing. but it's I'm coming, incredibly... I'm
0: gonna drop that bitch out of the blue. It's, come, it's done. Amazing. Yes, sir. Like
2: well, I can't wait. I mean, honestly, I just it's it really is like like anyone who loves music, like it just I could just chart my fucking different points in my life from like the first time I took AT Aliens out and put it on the fucking turntable and like probably didn't even understand it at that point as like a whatever 19 it blows my mind as well sometimes when i remember that you guys were like 15 20 25 like dropping those records by the time stanconia like it those records everything was so fully realized like you were kids like essentially
0: yeah man it's it's, it's definitely a gift man
2: yeah
0: you know we were put here for a reason and like you said like i get that a lot of like when people say that the soundtrack to their lives, that's, that's what you want to hear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, moments, moments. Yeah. moments, moments.
2: Exactly. Well, thank you for talking to me today. And thank you for the all the moments. And I, I can't wait for the big sleepover. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for everything. Yeah, all you right.
0: too. And if you got some stuff, man, you got to send me some stuff, man. We ain't did nothing yet. You know, I I would love to. I would love to. Should I just I'll... Go, go on your back? Yeah, go on your back. Go in your bag, man. I will. Just gotta be something else. You know what I mean? You got it. You you definitely got it. You got it. It'll be the shit that you'll be like, eh, nah, no, that'd be the shit that I pick. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I have a I have a job this afternoon now. Yes, sir, right. man. Appreciate Thank it, bro. Thank you brother. so much. Appreciate it. Right. Thank you so much. All right, I gotta go in my bag and send some music to the guy who's made some of the greatest music of all time. And obviously the thing that I think he'll probably want isn't because with someone who's so progressive like that, he's just got to pick out the weirdo shit. Anyway, pressure's on. Thank you so much to Big Boy. This has truly been a legendary treat. Thank you for listening. Take me out with the fader.
1: Thanks again to Big Boy for taking the time to talk with us. A special Fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award-winning host, Mark Ronson. Please visit thefader.com slash podcasts to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Please join us next Monday to find out which of your favorite artists will be uncovered next. Executive Producers Rob Stone and John Cohen for The Fader Podcast Network. Talent Booking, Robert English. Producers Alex Robert Ross and Maddie Russell Shapiro. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with byt.nyc. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Barry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered Merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week.